Welcome to the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast. We are jumping into our second episode this week, and our special guest, I don't know him quite as well as you do, Michael. Who are we going to be talking to today? Yeah, Gilbert Valentine. We're just uh, delighted to have him as part of our podcast for our second episode, and one of the most distinguished uh, Adventist historians out there. Awesome. So he's done a bunch of different uh, writing and stuff for the church. What, what kind of topics or things has he been interested in? What makes him kind of stand out? Yeah, well, a couple things just right away is he grew up, uh, he's a Kiwi, so from New Zealand. Uh, so he comes back, or comes with a, a real international flavor, uh, background at uh, Avondale. Uh, spent quite a few years in missionary service, uh, both as a pastor, as an educator, as an administrator. Uh, spent quite a, a fair amount of time in Pakistan, as well as in uh, Thailand, uh, just two places I, I can think of right away where uh, he served as a college president. So uh, along that journey, uh, and I think connected with his passion for education was developing uh, education. When we talked with George Knight, that's kind of where the field he was in and, and kind of merging or bridging into Adventist history. And so uh, Gill was one of George Knight's very early uh, PhD students or doctoral students and goes ahead oh, nice. and um, quite a bit of his dissertation research on W.W. Uh, Prescott, uh, the first real educator that um, really develops a educational system for the oh, church. Okay. Cool. So he's bringing a real international perspective on things here, but uh, definitely focus focusing in on some pretty key figures here. That's cool. What uh, What's he doing with himself currently these days? Well, the last number of years, he's been uh, doing some teaching at La Sierra University with their leadership program, directing that. And I think he's sort of uh, in the process of uh, retiring where he's spending more. And I, I just I don't think he stays still. So for him, I think that means more research and more writing. And he's been coming out with just a <laughs> uh, just a number of amazing uh, monographs, probably the most recent uh, of, of real uh significance is his new biography of John Nevins Andrews, the first official mm. Adventist missionary. So you kind of have a, a missionary writing about a missionary. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, that's 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 a great, great perspective from somebody who has gone out and, and been in the field, looking back at one of our first and earliest pioneers in the field. So that's really cool. I'm kind of excited about this conversation. And Jesus himself said, that he did not come to do away with the law. God not take us out of this world if he does not want us to be contaminated by it. This is the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast with your hosts, Michael Campbell and Greg Howell. Well, Gil, we're just delighted to have you as part of uh, this series on Adventist historiography and uh, for those of us, for those that are listening, we you know have Gilbert Valentine, who is a distinguished uh, Adventist historian, has written quite a number of books uh, and has been involved in Adventist history for several decades, um, and started out as a doctoral student of George Knight. So, uh, Gil, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Good to be with you. And uh, we just like to maybe a, a great place to begin would be your beginning. How did how did you become interested in Adventist history? Well, I guess um, my interest in Adventist history went back to an interest in religious history first. Um, I remember at Avondale we were we were required to read John Bright's History of Israel, and that kind of gave me new perspectives rather than what we just picked up from Scripture. I found really helpful. And then another book we were required to read was Roland Banton's Here I Stand, the biography of Martin Luther, requirement for a class in Reformation history. And that really whetted my, my appetite. Um, later, when I went to Andrews to study, I encountered um, Dick Swartz's biography of uh, John Harvey Kellogg, and, and also um, the book on, on the history of Andrews um, that had been written by Emmett K. Vanderveer, The Wisdom Seekers. And, and that kind of had a, a fresh probing behind the normal <laughs> anecdotes that you hear and, and really whetted my appetite. So that, that's what stimulated my interest. 
until I got into, not until, but uh, then that was enhanced when I took a, a class from George Akers, a seminar. I was doing religious education and uh, he had a seminar class in the history of religious education. And an assignment I took upon myself was to look at the parallels between Ellen White's Council on Education and other writers in the 19th century. You know, Pestalozzi, um, Froebel, John Herbart, um, and, and others. And I gave this presentation to George Aker's <laughs> seminar, and it surprised him and surprised myself. I was really quite surprised by the kind of parallels. Um, and that kind of interest in Adventist history and Adventist education led to my becoming involved with George Knight in his early Adventist educators. So that, that's, that's how it started. I actually went to Andrews to study about the development of adolescence and, and what made adolescence tick, because I was in youth ministry. <laughs> but when I was at Andrews, I became converted to Adventist history and have been interested in it ever since. And, and you're a Kiwi too, right? I mean, you're from New Zealand? I'm a Kiwi, yeah, from New Zealand. Do you bring, a, actually, to your history and background, a real global international flavor, which I, I think is really cool? I've been blessed to have uh, opportunities for service in a number of different places overseas, and, and that's been very enriching, yeah. Now, tell us a little bit about, you know, George Knight, you know, you're working with him. I think you were one of his first, if not the first, of his doctoral students, or maybe the first to finish. I can't remember how he put it, but... Uh, how, you know, tell us what that was like to start out working under under him and um, just kind of curious how, how you see yourself. I mean, here you've also gone on to write extensively on Adventist history and how you see yourself in, in juxtaposition to that. Yeah, I think, think you're right. Um, I was probably the first of George's <laughs> students to finish. Some of the others took a little longer. <laughs> um, but I, I first got acquainted with George because he used to come to our house. We lived in Garland D2 in uh, the apartments there at Andrews. And he used to come to, to my house to uh, visit my wife, Gail, um, because she had set up a little business typing dissertations and, and typing academic papers. And he'd learned about this and, and valued um, Gail's typing skills. So he would come occasionally and uh, we, we would visit on those occasions. Um, I never took a class from George in Adventist history. I think I challenged his his exam. I mean, challenged his course in Adventist history as a prerequisite. But um, after my encounter with, with George Akers and my introduction to Adventist history that way, and I finished my coursework and I was thinking about what kind of topic to research from a dissertation, I encountered George on the pathway as he was walking home one evening. <laughs> after classes, and I stopped him and told him of my increasing interest in Adventist history and asked him to suggest what, what kind of a topic I might explore. And uh, he, he suggested that um, Prescott could be a good topic, that no one had looked at him previously. Um, I was familiar with uh, other students that had studied with George, you know, and as Adventist, as the scholars at uh, Andrews, as doctoral students, you, you kind of talk amongst your colleagues to find out who are the good supervisors. <laughs> and I'd done that. I'd, I'd talk with Alan Lindsay. He'd worked with George. Milton Hook had worked with George. Warren Ashworth, <laughs> all had been students. So we talked amongst ourselves. And, and I was interested in George as a supervisor because he had developed a reputation for rigor and for probing behind the, the superficial and, and gave good support um, to his students. So um, when he suggested Prescott might be a topic, then I asked him whether he'd be interested in supervising me. And, and he said, well, find out what's there. I'm not sure that there's enough material for a dissertation on, <laughs> on Prescott. So go and have a look first. Um, so I, I did. I, I made some preliminary inquiries. Um, and I think this, this was uh, late 79 or early 1980. Um, 
I actually registered for my first class with George. <laughs> and uh, that was a class in documentary methods in, in research. So it was a kind of a technical required class for research methods. And uh, I went across to New England, spent the summer, about six weeks in New England, digging around in historical societies, um, museums, and newspaper offices, um, and came back just, my mind was blown at the amount of material I was able to uh, locate on Prescott in New England, which is Prescott's birth area. He was born in Vermont, lived in Maine for a while, and wrote up a paper for George's class in documentary methods that ended up to be a 90-page <laughs> report on Prescott's first 30 years. Wow. Um, so, so that kind of really got me into it in a big way. And George was just a superb supervisor, made good comments on, on your paper. And we had many good discussions. I, I was, um, had been a student of Des Ford's and at Avondale, and we had some really good discussions on Ford's theology and where his weakness was and where his strengths were. And, and George and I developed a, a kind of a, a soulmate relationship where he was interested in the gospel. He, he, George was passionate about the gospel and, and I was too. And so we had a kind of a, a neat relationship in that. We pushed each other, you know, you know, in our understandings. He pushed back, I pushed him. Um, so we, we developed a, a neat relationship. He, he firmly believed in grace. And, and that was, that's still the richness of, of his career and his contribution. And I've, I valued him immensely for that. Um, he became a mentor to me um, when, when we, he, he became a helper when I was doing my research. I'll, t I'll tell you about that story a little later, um, how I got involved in the wider state. But uh, <laughs> um, George became a, a real mentor to me over the years. Once I'd finished at Andrews, he uh, kept up the interest. He kept encouraging me to, to publish my dissertation on Andrews um, and then modelled how to... Uh, to publish a biography when he did his own one on A.T. Jones. Um, and, and he sent me his manuscript on that so I could read it. I was in Pakistan at the time as a missionary. Um, and, and so he became a mentor and, and modeled actually how to publish. We, we also worked together on his book, um, Early Adventist Educators. And, and I valued sort of working as his research assistant. I got a job as his research assistant at Andrews um, and, and really valued that experience, doing the, the groundwork and finding the documentation for that book, which was his first book that he, he published. Um, and then over the years, he, he's visited me in different places, in England and Pakistan and Australia and even in Thailand. You know, so, so the relationship has been really good, and he has helped me find publishers myself. So I valued him in that respect. Um, George has been committed to a, a more comprehensive view of Adventist education. He, he's researched well, um, and uh, he, he's been encouraged by my research. I mean, when when, when we were both researching down at uh, the GC archives, in the first stage of my doctoral research, he was researching his book and I was researching the dissertation. We would find some new insight, <laughs> some new discovery, some letter, and, and we'd go and share it with each other. There was a kind of a shared joy of, of discovery. Um, and and that's, that's been true right through the years. If I've discovered some some new insight from a letter that I've read, I'll send him a copy. <laughs> or he'll send to me, you know, have you seen this? <laughs> um, so there's been that kind of a, a relationship. And uh, I think I might now push a little further than what George does in, in understanding, but, but we're on the same, same page, really. Um, and, and we've bounced off each other ideas. 
and uh, yeah, I'm I'm indebted to him enormously as as a scholar, and I've been able to to push into other areas that he hasn't been able to. I mean, I I've used politics and organizational behavior as a lens through which to understand Ellen White um, and the relationship of, of power in organizations as a lens to understand Ellen White. And that's, that's gone into other areas where he hasn't probed, but he's been with me in that journey <laughs> and has provided valuable feedback and insight. So, you know, I, again, I've, I've indebted in, in enormously to, to George's mentoring and his insight and our sharing of, of the, the glory of the, the grace of, of, of God. And uh, that's been a blessing to me. I'd like to jump in and, and ask you a little bit about, you know, some of these other lenses through which you've built on some of this work you mentioned earlier of power. Um, I was thinking of also economics, some of these other kinds of frameworks. Tell us how you got interested in exploring those um, I mean, the other thing that comes to mind with Glacier View, um, I mean, that's, a, again, a, partly a story of power, too, right? It's a power struggle. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and even the White Estate, you've written on the White Estate, which is a, in a way that's power, but it's power over who controls or who's the custodian of Ellen White, right? Um, I'd love to hear how you became interested in that and some of your thoughts and how those ideas have percolated as, as you've developed yeah. them over the years. yeah. Um, my my interest in in the history interest in the history of the White Estate actually stemmed back to my research on Prescott. Yeah, I was researching Prescott's later life. He was a field secretary of the GC in the nineteen thirties, and and also did a, a short stint as a professor at Manual Missionary College up in Bering Springs to help them out at a time of accreditation when they needed his MA degree. So in my research of that period in Prescott's life, I stumbled over this letter from C.H. Watson, who was the GC president, um, to Arthur White, uh, to Willie White. Willie White. Um, It was a letter from the 1933 period. And as I read it, it was in a file that I was looking for in connection with Watson's correspondence with Prescott. And here turns this turns up this letter to Willie White. And it's a letter of rebuke. And it's a letter in which Watson explains that he's been asked by the GC officer group to write this letter of rebuke to Willie White and to say that unless he becomes more cooperative, they will have to take more serious action. And I said to myself, wow, there's a story behind this, <laughs> and I don't know what it is. But I had to put it on a shelf because it wasn't really related to my research then. Um, and, and so it just went into my files and stayed there for almost a decade. Um, after my time at uh, finishing my research, I, I went to Australia, then to Pakistan. And in Pakistan, I became involved in administration as a president of the seminary and the college there for six years. And uh, I learned administration. (laughs) I'd taken one or two classes in administration at Andrews, but not much. It wasn't my major field. So I learned administration from the doing of it (laughs) in Pakistan and and was blessed by that. When I went to Newbold to join the faculty there after my time in Pakistan, I was asked to teach a class in um, educational administration. And that enabled me to put theoretical constructs around what you actually do in administration. And our textbook for that was Organizational Behavior, a classic book. And I learned from that. One of the most helpful books I ever read, (laughs) would you believe, was on organizational behavior. And then I read quite a few others beyond that one. But uh, talked to that spoke about social psychology, the way organizations behave, about power relationships, about conflict management, about change management. So we dealt all with all these subjects in class. And, and I really became quite 
interested in the, the, the concept of, of organizational behavior and conflict and change management and actually taught classes on that later. Well, I was at Newbold for about four years and then was called back to Avondale to be the academic vice president there. And as good academic vice presidents do, you try and model research for your faculty. <laughs> so I was encouraging my faculty to become involved in research. We needed to, to become involved in research on our journey to university status. And one of the best ways of helping them to, to get involved in research was for me to do some myself. And I it occurred to me then, well, maybe I, I could dig out that letter from Watson to uh, Willie White and see what's behind it. I'll do some research. So I applied for a grant, actually, that enabled me to go across to the White Estate. And because I was also familiar with Bert Holoviak, who was later to become my father-in-law, um, I began to find in the GC files much more material about the White Estate itself. I mean... The GC files had all the minutes of the, the White Estate board meetings. And I discovered, to my great interest, that they had three letters from Willie, from C.H. Uh, Watson to Willie White. And these, this correspondence really revealed a power struggle that was really quite strong during the 1930s. Who was going to control the release of materials from the White Estate. The White Estate at this time was still over in Elmshaven. Um, and it was a real struggle. The White Estate folk thought that the trustees had been given the responsibility. <laughs> and Daniels and Willie White, the Daniels and C.H. Watson and others at the GC felt that they didn't have complete independence. They might be responsible for caring for the manuscripts and the pieces of paper, but the ideas on those pieces of paper? That's a different question. And because I had become familiar with the problem of intellectual property as a vice president for academics, and who owned course descriptions? Was it the teacher or the college? <laughs> pieces of paper and the ideas expressed on them. So that, that became began to gel for me. And uh, as I was reading that, it, it uh, became clear that there was a history to be told here, particularly a history of the conflict over control of the white estate resources. And uh, it became clear through the literature that the church itself was struggling with the idea that its own theology of the gift of prophecy was maturing. And they were faced with the question, had the gift of prophecy been placed in a family or had it been placed in the church? New Testament, 1 Corinthians. Where does the gift reside? And in a sense, the trustees had been set up to safeguard the manuscripts about the messages that came through those manuscripts. Did they also belong to the family? Or did they somehow reside in the church? And if they resided in the church, as the New Testament taught, how was the church to, uh, to manage that? So that eventually led to the forming of spirit of prophecy committees that were much more representative of the church as a whole than just the trustees. And those spirit of prophecy committees could sense the spiritual needs of the church and what fields of the church needed what particular council and was able to feed back into the process of manuscript release. So, long story there, but <laughs> a, um, a story that grew out of first the discovery of a document, then my acquaintance with organisational behaviour and the way organisations behave, and what happens when you get two conflicting sources of authority in a church? A charismatic authority and formal executive authority. And because I'd become familiar with the theoretical framework of those kind of studies, how does politics work in an organization, that gave me a, a particular kind of lens that 
gave me new insight into the history of the wider state and the struggles that were going on there. Yeah, so long story there, but... Uh, it, it brings up several different ideas for me here. I mean, what I hear you saying is this is a, this is a, a conflict or a, a back and forth pull between who gets to tell not just the story of Ellen, the, the spirit of prophecy and Ellen White's writings, but who gets to compile and interpret and, and, and put forth a certain hermeneutic of her writings as much as anything. Um, and that's, that's a fascinating time, especially when we're looking at the rise of compilations during the 30s and 40s. Yeah. Um, you know, who's in charge of that particular compilation or uh, that that adds an extra element to it. And when you when you bring in the concept of, uh, yeah, copyright laws and intellectual property, um, yeah, yeah. Complex, <laughs> I mean, I, it, that is I mean, I, I, I think in my own education, when I look at biblical exegesis, the intellectual property in my head goes to John the Revelator. If I'm asking, you know, whose idea is this that wrote Revelation? Yeah. But. But at the same time, is it totally John, you know? <laughs> well, what, the whole That's... thing came to a head in the mid-1930s when Willie White put together his own compilation of counsels to administrators. <laughs> and, and he wasn't working mm. with, his even trustee, with his trustees even then. So he sent out this fairly substantial um, collection of uh, manuscripts on counsel to administrators that was very critical of administration. And the administrators got back to him and said, who authorized you to do this? And what is the problem that you see with us that you're wanting to shape all these councils to us? Has the mantle of your mother fallen on your shoulders? <laughs> Have you been made the prophet to see what we need from these councils? So th there was a vigorous reaction from the general conference officers on that, and they forced him to withdraw that manuscript, to call them all back in. <laughs> so <laughs> he assigned that task to Arthur and, and they had to call. And that, that kind of highlighted the problem. Who really does sense the spiritual needs of the church? Is it <laughs> the son of the prophet or is it the church itself as it expresses itself through committees of the GC? Yeah. Uh, that that again uh, brings so many questions of who's who should regulate the regulators. Yeah, that's true. That, that poses <laughs> another question, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah. So it it, it wow. is complex. But it was that that study on on the power dynamics involved between the GC and and the wider state that led me later to think if those tensions existed um, after Ellen White lived as they tried to deal with the residue of the gift of prophecy, you know, the, the writings themselves, which were still a tremendous source of influence and power in the, the denomination. How would that dynamic have worked if I take that set of lenses and go back and look at the relationship between Ellen White and the GC presidents in, in life? <laughs> I mean, you've got her charismatic power, her influence that comes through a genuine charisma, that the Lord's given her. But then executive authority and administration is also a gift of the spirit in the church that God placed in the church. So are they equal? Does one dominate above the other? Or do they collaborate and cooperate? But what happens when they come into conflict, as they surely do and will? Um, which one? They, they go off. Found Avondale. Yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's what led me to um, to my study on the prophet and the presidents. And, and I discovered that, in fact, our traditional understanding that whatever she said was implemented is not really an adequate way of understanding. They respected the, the GC officers and the local conference presidents, presidents respected and honoured and recognized the spiritual gift that had been there. But they also recognized that sometimes there was a need for common sense in the application of those, uh, those councils, and that sometimes there were balancing ethical um, imperatives that needed to be uh, considered 
by an executive officer who is doing his best to exercise his spiritual gift of administration. And and that book tells that that that, uh, that story. And I think it's a it provided another lens, an important lens, to help understand the relationship. Is that what also maybe drove you to do the Andrews biography? Because to push back a little bit earlier, because isn't that sort of another dynamic, the same thing, but again, a generation um, earlier? Not particularly, Michael. Um, that that study of John Andrews um, grew out of a request from, <laughs> from George That's Knight. After I'd finished the Prescott biography, in, in which I guess I, I didn't have the skills at that stage when I first wrote that study to look at Prescott from a larger perspective. But but my study of Prescott really gave me insight into his Christocentric focus. You know, that the, the church doctrines should be an expression of the gospel. Um, and and that, that was valuable for me, that perspective on Prescott. And also his importance of the importance he placed on scripture, you know, the story of how he introduced religious studies into the Adventist curriculum, when previously all Adventist students had studied was a class on doctrines with Uriah Smith on a Sunday night, and that was an elective. <laughs> um, but Prescott, through a huge struggle with his board and with uh, others, was able to introduce. Bible study into the curriculum and the first um, life and teachings class, for example, and for over time for that to become a required part of the curriculum, not just an elective. So, so Prescott was an important study for me in that respect, and it was because that, well, that's an interesting story, you know, <laughs> the Prescott poetry, um, because. When I wrote that, I wrote it at George's encouragement after my dissertation. He encouraged me to popularize it. But who would publish it? Because it was edgy in its day. And I, I was su surprised to find it. It was edgy. Um, but the Andrews University Press picked it up, would you believe? Not the Review and Herald or the Pacific Press. It, it was picked up by the Andrews University Press. And when it came out... Um, Lo and behold, the review editor, William Johnson, commented on it as being the best book from the press in 1992, which kind of brought kudos to Andrews University Press and Ron Knott <laughs> unexpectedly um, and did something to make it more acceptable to have those kind of publications in the church. But it was after that, um, that George visited me, oh, he was visiting me in Australia when Gail, my first wife, was suffering badly with cancer and had a short time to live, that he said, look, you need something to look to, to keep you busy when, when you've finished with this trauma, and said, I, I want you to think about doing a biography on John Andrews. Um, so that was that's how that happened. It was an invitation from George. But my writing of the John Andrews biography was enriched, I think, by a number of factors, one of which was this new set of lenses that I had developed to understand the relationship between people who have power in an organisation. And it was enriched by my cross-cultural background. I'd worked in Pakistan and I'd worked in Thailand and in England and, and I hadn't sought those jobs, but had been invited to take them and had been invited to accept them. And I was reluctant, rather, really, but, you know, when the Lord opens the door, you've, if there's nothing to prevent you from walking through it, then you should. That was my approach to ministry and to opportunities in church employment. But I've been blessed by that rich cross-cultural experience. And that, I think, gave me added lenses to, <laughs> through which to look at John Andrews' life and his relationship with Ellen White, what it means to live in a small community, for example. <laughs> in Pakistan, I lived in a tiny little community, 40 acres with 12-foot-high walls around it, <laughs> where you work together and play together and worship together and shop together <laughs> and get in each other's hair. <laughs> and I 
saw that happening in Battle Creek in the 1870s. Um, so, so that kind of cross-cultural, broader background gave me insight into what was happening in the inner dynamics of, of Adventism. One of the lenses that I found helpful in, in understanding uh, John Andrew's life was, was the lens of how power works in an organisation. And uh, James White was a fairly autocratic leader, very gifted um, but, and a good writer, um, but somewhat autocratic and somewhat uh, moody, actually. I think he suffered uh, a little from uh, uh, mood swings, not just a little. But understanding how John Andrews related to that and how James White was sometimes apprehensive about John Andrews, um, jealous of him in a sense, um, because of his gifts and his skills. Anyway, two strong leaders, how they were related to each other. And again, I think the, 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 the lens of organisational behaviour helps us to understand the leadership struggle that went on in Adventism in the 1870s, um, where they, they had to resort to thinking of James White as an apostle. Um, and that he was gifted and, and they would just do whatever he said. <laughs> that was the easiest way to get on with him. <laughs> and of course, that put back a lot of pressure on James and he didn't like that eventually. Liked it to start with, but when he saw what it meant, <laughs> then he, he backed off. Yeah, so looking yeah, at uh, the life of John Andrews and other church leaders through this, this broader set of lenses, I think, is, is very helpful. Yeah, and, and one of the things that I've appreciated uh, with you here is that I've seen in your interest of the Trinitarian discussions that were going on back and forth. Um, yeah, there's a definite sense of these are personalities that we're working with, not just theologies. You know, not just nobody is just a pure systematic theology in, in total. Um, from from your own research on this, the the church's Trinitarian development. One of the things I was wondering is what's your sense of why the Trinitarian and anti-Trinitarian uh, debates have kind of started to reemerge in certain sectors of the world church. Uh, what, do you, what do you feel is perhaps driving some of these newfound discussions? In those areas? It is true that uh, concern about the doctrine of the Trinity and a desire to go back to, to a pre-Trinitarian position is, is manifesting itself in a number of places. I, I wonder whether there are two or three reasons for that. Um, one is, I think, that Arianism or semi-Arianism is a much more natural bedfellow with a more, um, with a much more, um, how should we put this, legalistic approach, earn your way to salvation. Um, in fact, Athanasius's triumph over Aria, Arius came about largely because the church had developed a richer understanding of the doctrine of salvation. Its soteriology had become enriched when it was realized that, you know, there was no way we could save ourselves. Salvation was all of God. You know, it was his initiative. And it was that developing theology that really helped uh, early Christians to see the inadequacies of Arianism. And I wonder whether that might be a factor at play in, in current Adventism, where a move towards last generation theology and the emphasis on perfect living and, and the emphasis on we have a contribution to make <laughs> through our life and our behavior, and, and that that's a way of somehow subtly um, getting us into favor with God and earning salvation. Not voiced that way, but subtly experienced that way um, makes for the appeal of semi-Arianism in, in Adventism. So I think that's one factor, that the, the rise of last generation or the, the re-emphasis <laughs> on last generation theology. Um, because early Adventism, as George Knight has pointed out in his book on, on, on Bates, did have this strong um, legalistic approach to understanding salvation. And that was supported by that 
semi-Aryanism. It all went together. There's another factor I think at work, and that is Adventists have always had this strand of restorationism. You know, early Adventism saw itself as, as being restorationist. That, that's the disciples of Christ and, and the Christian connection. And so that idea of the, sensing that the Trinity was an aberration introduced by Catholicism <laughs> um, has always been part of Adventist background. But maybe in today's Adventist world, a sense that we need to go back to the very beginnings <laughs> and restore original Adventism in a sense. And those early pioneers who came from a Christian connection background, um, influenced by Unitarianism to some degree in early New England, and feel that we ought to take the earliest Adventist perspectives on Christology and theology. And that's the, that's the best version. Um, so I think that might be at work, not realizing that Adventists themselves have grown in our understanding of soteriology and of Christology, and that that growth has not been a growth away from truth, but a growth towards truth. That is a hard dynamic in Adventism in general. Uh, so much of our belief system has been, like you said, either restorationist you know, we're bringing the Sabbath back from obscurity, yeah. rescuing it from, you know, the, the thousand years of uh, misinformation put out by different ideas. Like we have really founded ourselves on the idea that we are, we're going back to a better original thing that was lost. Yeah, We, we do not have a sense of positive uh, improvement as much as we do backwards reduction, <laughs> yeah. you know? And so that's, I, I think, in our in our own evangelistic emphasis, uh, that's a hard sell for people who came in with the belief, I'm, I'm retrieving what was better versus I'm building and making it better. Yeah, yeah. That's an important dynamic. And huh. it's part of our ethos, isn't it? Really, is that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want to shift gears just a little bit and come back to this uh, historiography theme. Um you know, I mean, you've been there with George from the, you know, with your dissertation fairly early on. So, I mean, you've been watching Adventist historiography unfold over this time. And so I, what I'm really, I guess I'm after is where, where have you seen the greatest progress in Adventist historiography? Uh, you know, conversely, where do you see the greatest challenges? And, and maybe there might be somebody listening to this and is thinking, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking for a dissertation topic. You know, what, where, where are the opportunities? Where would you dream with us a little bit where you would like to see uh, Adventist historiography going yeah. into the future? Well, there are um, enormous opportunities in, in Adventist history, that's for sure. And I think one of the, the greatest developments that's taken place has been an awareness that there are many more resources than ever we imagined we had. You know, the, the, the resources for the study of Adventist history have become much more comprehensive and much broader and much richer. Um, one of the really surprising things, right, when I began my study on Prescott, when I went to New England and made my way around those museums and historical societies, and discovered that there was much more about Adventism located in those files than I'd imagined, much more about Prescott as an Adventist. Um, that, that really enriched my early understanding of Prescott, his background as a newspaper editor, um, his life as a, as a principal and his attendance at Dartmouth, you know, to go to Dartmouth and look at his grade record, records. <laughs> um, so, so that kind of really opened for me, um, extended the horizon to begin with. Um, and then I think in more recent years, there are sources of correspondence that have become available um, from the General Conference. I mean, the presidential correspondence that's, that's there, available for research. And of course, the wider state has blessed us enormously 
by putting online um, all of Ellen White's correspondence and her writings, but going beyond that and putting online Willie White's correspondence and James White's correspondence and even Edson's. Um, so today, that's all there. Um, and it's available when it wasn't there before. And, and all of those letters that were in the Z file <laughs> are now available. So Adventist historiography now has to cope with that. Um, and that, that's a much richer and more comprehensive set of sources than the highly selective sources that were available, available before. Um, and in a sense, some people might call that that's, say that that's doing revisionist history, you know, that we're revising our understandings. But really that's been brought about by the fact that we do genuinely now have a more comprehensive picture of Adventist history. The sources are more comprehensive. I mean, not only do we just hear Ellen White speaking now, but we hear James arguing with her. And we hear John Andrews replying to her letters. <laughs> so we have his perspective. Um, and, and those incoming letters are now also available online. So that's sort of given Adventist historiography a much richer set of sources to, to explore, to give us a more comprehensive. And if it's revisionist, it's not revisionist in a negative way. It's revisionist in a, in a much more positive and helpful way because we do have a more complete picture now. It's expansionist, right? Expansionist, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a richer, deeper. We can see the, the, the warp and the woof of the, the fabric of Adventism much more closely. And, and the picture is more vivid in its color um, and, and, and more engaging, I think, because we're able to see that these leaders of early Adventism were real people. Um, with their flaws and their quirky personalities and their giftedness, <laughs> but they were, were people like us. So that, that's, that's one of the challenges, I think, that Adventist historical, historiography has to cope with, that the rich resources, and, and even now, that they're becoming more available all the time. I mean, one of, one of my exciting parts of the journey has been the discovery of uh, new new diary sources that uh, are available. To, to learn of the two diaries from John Andrews' non-Adventist aunties <laughs> and, and getting a close quarters perspective on, on how they saw the family, this odd Adventist family, Millerite family, <laughs> um, whom they loved and visited with them in their home, but were puzzled by them. That, that gives us insights, I think. Um, and, and if I can suggest here, there was a time when our understanding of Adventist history was shaped almost exclusively was what, by what was in the wider state sources and, and the general conference sources. So it was a kind of a, a family perspective, a church family perspective um, from a very narrow range from the white estate itself and its spokespersons and the GC. But when you see the community responding to these Adventist families and close relatives um, and other workers um, who made notes in their diaries that are not in the white estate, <laughs> I mean, to read Jean Vumier's diary, he was a 17-year-old working with John Andrews in Europe worked with him for two or three years, his last years, and a very spiritual, devout young man. But to read his diary perspectives um, gives totally new insights. Not totally new, but um, richer, more rounded insights and, and completes our picture. Um, to discover the diary left by um, the Lewis family, Lewis was the um, the uh, custodian of the Battle Creek Tabernacle <laughs> for many years, and we just discovered his diary recently. 
So that's that's been helpful. So th th those are some of the challenges. Um, perhaps a worrying challenge, I think, is that so much of our correspondence today is on email um, or through chatting together <laughs> like this, um, where where the sources, I think, in the future will become more difficult and more limited. Um, I, don't, I don't know how it's going to be possible to preserve email resources <laughs> when you just wipe hard drives when you update your computers. Um, so it's going to be more challenging in that sense and yet enriching because digital files are easier to search. <laughs> so that, that's a mixed blessing. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if I answered your question comprehensively there, Michael. But... I love it. Um, I, you know, I'd love to hear, you know, what are you working on now? If you don't mind kind of just telling us a little bit what you've been doing and, you know, you know, I always love to hear little tips and tricks. You know, how have you been able to be so prolific as well? You know, or do you have and, and you're advice? asking that question reminds me of, of an answer that I was going to give to a, your earlier question about the economics. Can I comment on, on that for, for a moment? Oh, sure. um, yeah. in, in my study on John Andrews, it became clear to me that some of our major advances in doctrinal understanding, if you can call tithing a doctrine and, and financial support of the church a doctrine, and I think it is, it occurred to me that, that our advances in understanding in those areas came through Bible study, yes, but through economic necessity as well. I mean, our adoption of mm -hmm. systematic benevolence as a way of a form of church support came in 1857 and was occasioned i mean what what facilitated and stimulated that was an economic recession <laughs> and the fact that pastors were dropping out of the ministry i mean Luff, Loughborough dropped out and went off to work as a carpenter in Iowa because his income was so low and his income was low because of a recession that put pressure on church members contributing to the support of the church. So it was the economic pressure of a recession that stimulated the church to study to come up with systematic benevolence. And we adopted systematic benevolence because we believed that tithing was, was a form of the ceremonial law and not binding on the church. So we rejected that doctrinal position because of a previous view of the ceremonial law and, and we wanted to find our systems of support for church finance from the New Testament, which we did, <laughs> systematic benevolence. But then a recession hit again in the 1970s, and it was more severe. And we discovered that systematic benevolence was not adequate to fund the church in all its endeavors. So it was another financial recession that prompted us to say, well, Perhaps we can see tithing as not being part of the ceremonial law, but still binding on us. <laughs> so economic drivers led to doctrinal development. And I, I don't think we've realized how significant that is in, in our church history. To some degree, I think the economic difficulties of the Civil War, when the church almost bankrupted itself by paying all these, um, these bonuses to try and keep church ministers out of the military, led to real economic stress and helped to shape our understanding of conscientious objection and, and our stance on military service. So that that needs to be explored. I think that, that has real potential for exploration. And of course, we're familiar with how problems with the IRS led to developments in our doctrine of uh, ordination of women <laughs> um, in the 1970s, 1974, where, where the threat of having to pay huge penalties to the IRS for unpaid tax if we didn't change our policy on licensed ministers and the implications of that for women in ministry, we created associate pastors as a credential in response to economic pressure 
not Bible study. And I guess if you took that too far, you could say, well, we need to do a Marxist study <laughs> of the church <laughs> to look at the economic factors that were behind much of its development. And I'm not advocating that at all. <laughs> but there are economic factors to consider. So that, that's my interest in economics. And uh, there's, a, there's a paper that needs to be shaped up on that somewhere, sometime. Well, back to the tips and tricks. I mean, do you write in the morning? How, how do you avoid writer's block? I mean, just in a nutshell. I mean, I mean, we could do a whole episode on just this, I suppose. But you're prolific, Gil. And I, I want to I learn your yeah. secret. <laughs> well, I think you've got the first one, Michael, and you're—that's the the gift of curiosity. Um, to be curious about things, to ask why—why why did things happen? Why did people feel this way, <laughs> or why did someone react this way and, and get angry or disappointed or depressed? <laughs> so the the gift of curiosity is, I think, a powerful that keeps me going. Um, so many questions to be answered, <laughs> so many things to be explored. And and I think reading widely, general reading, uh, broadens your understanding of, of context. I, I, I enjoy reading. I enjoy listening to books. And being retired, sorry you're not there yet, Michael, but <laughs> being retired helps because it gives you the time. <laughs> um, and... and George has asked me to take on the biography for Hippenstall. Um, so I signed up for that one recently with the new uh, editor for the Pioneer series, Dennis Kaiser. Um, so I'm working on that currently. And that's, that's a really interesting study. Um, that led me into uh, to another area, which was actually stimulated by your book, Michael. <laughs> Um, your, your really, really interesting book on 1919 and the church's struggle with fundamentalism. As I was doing some original, uh, some initial research in the Heppenstall uh, era, which got me into it, um, Pearson's correspondence and other correspondence, the correspondence about the seminary and, and Heppenstall at the seminary, that posed for me the problem, if the church struggled with the rise of fundamentalism in the 1920s, what do we know about the rise of, rise of progressivism or the rise of liberalism in the 1970s? Is that the story to be told? <laughs> um, so that's an area that I'm exploring now, um, how, how people became dissatisfied with fundamentalism in the 1940s and 50s. And that led to the rise of what we call progressivism. And if fundamentalism is not an adequate way of understanding Adventist teaching and understanding, is liberalism an adequate way or somewhere in between? <laughs> so I'm, I'm interested in exploring that at the moment. And uh, I hope to have something to write on that in the not too far distant future. What, what are the topics you ask about um, that can be explored still for an Adventist historian? And, and I, I hope there's a, a multitude of Adventist historians out there who, who can explore dissertations. I, I think um, one that occurs to me, a topic, is uh, Ellen White as an American abroad. Ellen White as a traveller. Um, I don't think there's been a serious study done on that. Um, why, why did she take an interest well we know she took an interest in, in dramatic scenery mountains and valleys and bush when she went to New Zealand you know, she was really interested in this dramatic scenery of New Zealand but never took herself to a Maori village to look at Maori carvings and, and Maori culture and, and why was that? Um, why, when she was in Australia, did she not go to a cricket match somewhere <laughs> to, to understand Australian culture? To, you, to understand Australian, you at least have to understand something about cricket. Um, but And she never mentions Aboriginals in Australia. Um, when she went to Europe, she um, 
visited Reformation sites. You know, she went to Zwingli's church in, in Geneva and, and went to the Waldensian Valleys. So what, what shaped her interests and, and what limited her interests as she traveled and what things did she... So I think a helpful study on that, no, I think a study on that would be helpful <laughs> to us. Um, another one comes to mind, Ellen White. I say this carefully, but Ellen White as a diva. Um, Ellen White, to some degree, was a high-maintenance person. She she needed special circumstances when she traveled. I mean, she she put herself to great discomfort when she traveled and, and was willing to risk life and limb when she traveled and, and was not intimidated by traveling abroad. But she couldn't tolerate tobacco smoke <laughs> and, and had to sort of be taken away from any close presence to tobacco smoke. And um, she she had many dramatic episodes where where she went into a state of sort of collapse at times when she heard bad news. But why was that? Um, so there there is still dimensions about Ellen White's temperament, her personality, um, that enabled her to be such a voice in Adventism. And she was a voice that we are indebted to. She shaped us. She was a, she kept us together, <laughs> a unifying force. It was extremely valuable. And, and we wouldn't have survived without her. But I think there are dimensions of her personality and her temperament that still need exploring. Um, yeah, so those are some topics I'd like to see folk explore as a historian, as Adventist historians. I've done a lot of I wish we had more time. I'd love to get your feedback on that new book I just saw come out yesterday, uh, the psycho psychological biography of Ellen White or something. Somebody just put it up on A Today I saw yesterday. <clears throat> Steve Daly's book. Yes, yes. That, that makes some unwarranted claims in its list of uh, people that he consulted with. My, my sense was that just in reading the title and the underlying. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Poses some difficulties. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. I honestly had one final question that I thought would be fun. Uh, if you could start over, uh, is there anything you do differently in terms of your work in Adventist history? Yeah, well, that's a probing question, isn't it? But it's one we often ask <laughs> dissertation students <laughs> when they're doing right? defense. <laughs> How would you do this differently if you had the chance <laughs> to do it again? Um, I, I'm not sure, um, Greg. Maybe if I had a chance to start earlier, it, it would have been mm. helpful. Um, but then life doesn't give you those opportunities. I was involved in administration and in, in pastoral work and lived in Australia and New Zealand. And there was little opportunity to interact with colleagues. Um, so I didn't really get into writing serious Adventist history into much later. Um, and so my, my counsel, if, if I had a chance and had the opportunity to start earlier, I'd, I'd say start as early as you can. Um, I guess if I'd done some things differently, I would have been more careful about backing up manuscripts. <laughs> I lost a couple mm. um, along the way through carelessness of not backing up consistently. Once you've done that once or twice, you... Um, you learn. So now I back up and back up <laughs> and, and make a separate hard drives of things because it's, <laughs> it's important. Um, I don't know that this is if I do it again, but I learned from um, the author of the biography of Robert Moses. What What's his name? Let me uh, just check. Um, Robert Caro. Robert Caro, was a, a, who, who taught me something when he said, turn every page <laughs> and see what's behind it. Don't skim in your research, um, but look, look under every rock in a sense. Um, that was the secret of his research, and he's, he's written a book about his research methods. Working is the title he gives it. 
but his most memorable line for me was turn every page um, and there are some things where, where I've had to go back and look again because I didn't look carefully the first time I, I learned along the way that if you're careful and thorough the first time you don't have to do your work over again so um, yeah that that's if I if I had the chance I'd take more detailed notes and uh, I'm thankful now for cameras and photocopiers <laughs> and scanners. That makes it easier. Yeah. But, it, it, but it's, it's a fun field to be in, Greg. I, I, I just love Adventist history. And looking back, admire the way God has led and seeing the patterns. And, and you can't always see it in advance, but looking back. You have a sense of gratitude for, for God's leading. And that's been a blessing in my own life and, and in my research. Yeah. Nice. Well, I think that's a great place for us to end out here, Dr. Valentine. Thank you so much. Um, appreciate your thoughts today and for your candid openness. Well, thanks for the opportunity for the conversation. It's been really enjoyable. And Jesus himself said that he did not come to do away with the law. The Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast is part of the Adventist History Podcast Network. You can find other podcasts as well as additional content from this podcast by following us on YouTube and Facebook. If you'd like to support this show or others on the Adventist History Podcast Network, please visit patreon.com slash Adventist History Podcast. Enjoy the show.